So the Dutch ate their prime minister? I'm pretty sure the peasants rose up, killed their prime minister, and ate him. Holy crap. <laughs> and they ate his brother, too. Uh, this what? was in 1672. No, they ate his brother, too. It was a full meal. Oh, my God. I wonder if there are other times in history that the working class have actually eaten the rich. It also happened in 1964 when John D. Rockefeller's grandson, Michael Rockefeller, was eaten by villagers in New Guinea. He was on an expedition to seize indigenous artifacts and his boat capsized and he swam to shore and was never seen again. Oh my God, I love that. Like indigenous revenge on the colonizers. You know, we need to collect these stories. We need to reinstill fear in the ruling class. I agree. For far too long, the bourgeoisie have abused the world's poor with no fear of the guillotine. And with no fear of cannibalism. I think it's time to make the rich scared again. It's time to give class wars some teeth. In part one of our Ukraine series, we're taking a deep dive into the history of U.S. interventionism in Ukraine, asking the basic question, why is the U.S. pouring billions of dollars into a war on the other side of the world when the risks of escalating such a war are unprecedented? Nuclear war, World War III, and climate collapse at an even faster rate than what's already happening? To understand this, we must understand the context of a decades-long U.S. proxy war in Ukraine. This political context is glaringly missing from the mainstream corporate media narrative, and this omission is very deliberate. The first casualty of war is always the truth, and we are in the midst of a media cold war. We have watched over the last few weeks as independent journalists who report on this history are being quickly deplatformed, censored, and labeled as Kremlin propagandists. All of this in order to prevent the public from having a true understanding of the geopolitical and capitalist interests that are at the heart of this war in Ukraine. As leftists, we know that capitalist wars are always waged on behalf of the ruling classes and against the world's poor and working classes. So in this episode, we want to start to provide some valuable context, some background information as to why the United States would be willing to escalate a Cold War with Russia. As independent journalists, Crawdads and Taters is asking for your support. The corporate media has shut down all critical debate, silenced dissent, and is ramping up the drumbeats for war. So please join us for this critical discussion and become a patron to support our rebellious work at patreon.com slash crawdads and taters. We can do this work with you, but not without you. Good morning, taters. Good morning, crawdads. How are you doing today? Good. Madeline Albright is dead. Yay! <laughs> I know we shouldn't outright celebrate the death of people but you know what i have to say i will not miss her not at all nope and i wish what i really wish is that i could say that she was the last of a generation of nato neocons that will be celebrated and decorated even though they caused death and mass destruction to tens of thousands of people 
Unfortunately, Henry Kissinger is still alive. Hillary Clinton's still alive. Joe Biden's still alive. <laughs> yes. <gasps> oh, Obama is still goes alive. On. It just goes on and on. But in memory of Madeleine Albright, I just wanted to give her a little tribute here. She served as the U.S. ambassador uh, to the United Nations from 1993 to 1997 under President Bill Clinton when she became the first female secretary of state. She was a um, staunch supporter of U.S. power and authoritarian regimes around the world, like Hosni Mubarak in Egypt and Indonesia's Suharto. She was a key architect of NATO's 78-day bombing campaign in Serbia in 1999. And, of course, there was her um, famous quote about the sanctions in Iraq. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so in 1996, you know, she was asked if the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children were worth it. And she basically just said that this was the price that was totally worth it in her mind. Yep. Yeah. I think 500,000 dead Iraqi children. Yeah. Over five, over half a million dead Iraqi children from sanctions. And she was asked what, what she thought about that. And then she said, Oh, I think it was worth it. And that was on a 60 minutes interview. I think she later recanted that and said it was a stupid statement at the time or some, something like that. But she said <laughs> the damage was done. We knew how she really felt. I think it was almost 10 years later when she said it was a stupid statement as well. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then later during, you know, Hillary Clinton's primary run, Madeleine Albright was like her, her wing woman, like there on the stage with her, like <sighs> telling us that um, if we voted for Bernie, there would be like a special place in hell for all of us. Do you remember that? Yeah. I think it had something to do with Hillary Clinton being a woman. And yeah. That's we right. were sexist Bernie bros. Yeah, that's something, right. along something, those lines. something along those lines. <laughs> so goodbye, Madeline Albright. May you rest well somewhere else. All right. Okay. That was our tribute that to was our tribute. Warmonger, Neocon, Madeline Albright. <laughs> So, um, yeah, what are we going to be talking about today in this mega episode? Right. Well, I think we're going to have to be talking about Ukraine, the same thing that everybody else is talking about, because what, we actually had other episodes planned right now, uh, but we kind of have to put them on pause and talk about this crisis in Ukraine, because even though there are disasters going on all over the world, other human rights disasters all over the world, including inside the United States that aren't getting a fraction of the media coverage, there are several key reasons that we do need to talk about Ukraine. So, yeah, the, one of the main reasons we wanted to focus on Ukraine is because, in essence, the United States is at war with another nuclear superpower. You know, whether or not... The government has, you know, actual boots on the ground. The economy is now a wartime economy. You know, we have plenty of reason to believe that this U.S. war in Ukraine is not an isolated incident, but the escalation of a political and military cold war that has been planned for several years now, perhaps decades. Yeah, I'm not sure we can even say it ever ended, the, the first one. It seems to have just continued on in a new new iteration. 
We also need to talk about this because the United States is deeply economically invested in this crisis that's happening on the other side of the world. What happens in Ukraine obviously doesn't represent a direct security threat to the United States, but by the fourth week of this war, the United States has just approved another $800 million in new weapons to Ukraine on top of an almost $14 billion aid package that had already been approved to Ukraine. Uh, This $14 billion aid package was passed in place of a $15 billion COVID relief package that was removed from the $1.5 trillion spending bill to fund the United States government. So the United States clearly doesn't have enough money to fight COVID here in its own country, but we seem to always have enough money to wage imperial wars around the world. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that the United States just passed 1 million deaths from COVID. And I haven't really seen much uh, coverage of that in the media. No. And we're cutting you know, the COVID relief bill at the same time that we passed this huge mark. That's one out of every 330 Americans has died yeah. from COVID. Yep. It seems like something significant. It seems like we should be you know, passing spending bills to take care of the citizens who are now living under record inflation. I mean, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, they were saying the COVID death rate was still 2,000 per week that were dying. And we know that the economy has been completely devastated. I also saw another statistic, just really quick, saying that 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck post-pandemic. And Biden's bragging about this being like the greatest economy ever. Yeah. And Nancy Pelosi is shunning reporters for daring to ask her what happened to that COVID relief bill. And she says, oh, how dare you ask that question when Ukrainians are dying? That's why we're talking about Ukraine, because Nancy Pelosi is, and we need to counter her narrative. And so much of the United States uh, budget is going towards that right now. Yeah, and this is you know part of history that we really want to dive into today as we explain some of this geopolitical context for the Ukrainian war. If you listen to the mainstream corporate media as your main source of information, you're going to be totally misled as to the historical and geopolitical nature of this crisis. You know, what's at stake for the U.S.? Why the U.S. has been involved in reigniting this global cold war? We've been doing a lot of research over the last month since the Ukrainian war started. Uh, We've been researching the roots of the crisis, and we just wanted to highlight some of that history and context here today. Anyone who's been listening only to the mainstream corporate media right now is certainly not getting an accurate picture of what's been happening in Ukraine. Well, not just in the last month, but for decades. The corporate media is now relentlessly beating the drums for war. They are unilaterally demonizing the enemy, which in this case is Putin, the Russian government, and actually everything Russian, from Russian food to Russian cats to just anything Russian. Russian athletes. Yep. Russian restaurants, Russian everything. The media is eliminating all historical context, calling anyone who questions U.S. policy a Kremlin propagandist or a Russian agent and dutifully doing its job as part of the military media industrial complex to manufacture and weaponize U.S. public opinion as fuel in this new Cold War. 
which in the long term will only prolong the war in Ukraine, killing more civilians, causing more refugees, and threatening to turn Ukraine into a permanent U.S.-NATO proxy state that will never have its own sovereignty. So if you actually care about sovereignty of the people in Ukraine, you should learn the history of the region. Yeah, I think that's very important. What this is really is a media cold war backing up the continuation of the actual Cold War and potentially, you know, aiding and abetting a hot war, which could turn into a nuclear war, World War Three, which would mean essentially the end of civilization. End of, yeah, most life on Earth. And all of this is just enriching the military industrial complex. But the mainstream media is not talking about that. But before we go any further, let's take a minute to talk about our own sources of information, because since we are in the middle of this media cold war already, it would be really naive to expect people to just trust us unconditionally, especially since what we're saying today is defying so much of the master narrative that we're hearing everywhere. So let's remind people who we are. I'm Taters. I'm Crawdads. Nice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, we're independent podcasters. We make no money off this podcast. The very small donations we receive on Patreon don't even begin to cover our time and our costs. There are no profits being made here. Furthermore, we are not underwritten by anyone, not any corporation, not any fossil fuel company, and we have no ties to the military industrial complex. We are not beholden to anyone. This podcast is something we provide as a form of independent journalism and basically as a public service because we care about these issues and we make the time to do all this research so that you don't have to. Yeah, this research has been ongoing for weeks and days and hours. Um, We've pretty much just lived Ukraine for the last month. And we're, you know, we're operating in the context of this media cold war where anti-war and anti-capitalist voices are being more suppressed than ever. Um, We saw RT America was shut down. We really believe now that this is more crucial than ever. And we'd really appreciate your support. You can find us at patreon.com, crawdads and taters. We'd really appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah, not just RT, but so many journalists, so many independent journalists have been shut down. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But yeah, our opinions are our own. And they're based on a very wide variety of non-corporate fact-checked and academic sources. They don't all come from the left. A lot of the opinions we're going to be expressing today come from military and uh, strategic government policy analysts from all sides of the political spectrum. And we will list our sources and tell you who our sources are as we are going along so that you can understand who we are reading and studying. Yeah. And uh, you, God adds, you have a master's degree in journalism. You've spent years critically examining news sources for accuracy, as well as studying the effects of corporate ownership on media bias. So, you know, you're very careful about vetting your information and making sure that what we're getting is very accurate. Thanks for that, Taters. And um, Taters here has a degree in world military history, which gives him a very broad and general knowledge of the history of the Cold War and world military history at large. 
And while neither of us are regional experts in Ukraine, we both have a keen understanding of U.S. interventionism around the world, including CIA interventions, IMF World Bank interventions, and the many, many projects of U.S. imperialism, neoliberalism, and neocolonialism in their unilateral mission to destroy communist and socialist countries and to destroy economies and pluralistic societies that resist the hegemonic takeover of global capitalism. Yeah, as leftists, you know, we felt it's our responsibility first and foremost to try to deeply understand U.S. interventionism. And we live in the U.S., so we need to understand the U.S. role in foreign conflicts abroad because this is what we have control of as U.S. leftists. We're financially invested in our own government. This is our state. We're really responsible as citizens of the United States. So before we even begin to speculate or judge the motives of Putin or anyone else, we think the uh, regime change begins at home. We have to understand U.S. corruption and the U.S. imperial and neocolonial motivations before we go into blaming anyone else for the problems of the world. So with that focus, let's get into some context and history of the U.S. involvement in Ukraine. But first, let's take a little break. So the history of Ukraine is very complex and goes back centuries, and we won't even begin to cover all of it. But as you mentioned, Taters, we want to focus specifically on U.S. intervention in Ukraine. Since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, the United States has taken on Ukraine as a neo-colonial imperial project. Ukraine has served as a U.S. proxy in an ongoing Cold War against Russia. But don't take our word for it. You know, Rachel, um, the idea of a Lincoln Brigade for Ukraine, uh, I know, has been uh, discussed. It may well be that uh, some uh, people will go into Ukraine to help fight uh, the Russians. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea for that to be a government-sponsored effort, and I think people who go should be made aware that they are going on their own. Um, it is heartbreaking to see Ukraine uh, standing alone uh, against Russia, although they're doing uh, so far uh, an amazing job in rallying uh, their citizens. Uh, I don't think you'll find any country right now that uh, will do that. But remember, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980. And uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying uh, arms and advice and even some advisors uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know, but the fact is that a very motivated and then uh, funded and armed uh, insurgency uh, basically drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. So there you have it. There were unintended consequences that she happened not to mention. So many unintended consequences. And as Hillary Clinton said, it is heartbreaking uh, um, what's happening to the Ukrainian civilians. Although she didn't sound very heartbroken to me. Not, not really, no. no. Um, she also left out that you know, this war in Afghanistan was also initiated by um, U.S. interference. The U.S. went in in 1979 and started this insurrection that then caused Afghanistan to uh, 
need the Soviet assistance to help defend their socialist government at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, you know, Hillary is not the only one who's telling us that Ukraine is essentially a uh, U.S. proxy in this war. Here's Adam Schiff during Trump's impeachment trial, which happened to be over Trump pausing the shipment of weapons to Ukraine. This military aid, which has long enjoyed bipartisan support, was designed to help Ukraine defend itself from the Kremlin's aggression. More than 15,000 Ukrainians have died fighting Russian forces and their proxies. 15,000. And the military aid was for such essentials as sniper rifles, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, radar, night vision goggles, and other vital support for the war effort. Most critically, the military aid that we provide Ukraine helps to protect and advance American national security interests in the region and beyond. America has an abiding interest in stemming Russian expansionism and resisting any nation's efforts to remake the map of Europe by dint of military force even as we have tens of thousands of troops stationed there. Moreover, as one witness put it during our impeachment inquiry, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. Well, it doesn't get much clearer than that. He's pretty much saying Ukraine is our proxy. We don't have to fight Russia over there. I mean, we don't have to fight Russia on our own soil. Why Why would we need to do that when we have Ukraine to fight it for us? If that's not the definition of a proxy, I'm not sure what is. Yeah. And um, he did mention, you know, 15,000 Ukrainians dying. He didn't really provide any context for that. And we're going to get into that a lot more, maybe not even in this episode, but I think it's important to note that that was a civil war in Ukraine that was not... Ukrainians, 15,000 Ukrainians dying fighting Russia, it was actually 15,000 mostly civilians dying fighting other Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Specifically right-wing Nazi forces fighting Russian Ukrainians in the Donbass region. Yes, and Ukraine used uh, cluster bombs on civilian populations there in 2014. Like I said, we'll get more into that Donbass in the I guess part two of this episode eventually get there. Right. (laughs) But yeah, but Adam Schiff's bringing that into this equation as if this is the reason that the U S has to step in now. It it just, there's so many things wrong with that assertion, notwithstanding his assumption about who the aggressor is in that particular conflict. In addition to the fact that it was the people actually doing the killing in that conflict were U.S. backed. So the idea that we need to like send even more weapons into Ukraine for this civil war, there's just so much to unpack here. The lesson here is, you know, these are two leading Democrats. They're explaining to us that Ukraine is by U.S. design fighting this war with Russia so that U.S. troops do not have to fight the war. Right. And so coming from that, I think we need to really get into, you know, why is Ukraine so important to the U.S.? Why do they want this proxy war to continue? Let's go back and start with the U.S. relationship to the region as the Soviet Union was collapsing in 1991. This was when the West, George Bush and Other leaders declared that the Cold War was over and that capitalism had won. 
Yeah, the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 was a huge opportunity for Western capitalism to move in and begin expanding their markets. Corporations set about privatizing all the former Soviet states, including Ukraine, and the result was a massive drop in living standards and life expectancy for former Soviet states. The safety nets that were set up by socialism were dismantled. People would have to become wage slaves, essentially, to earn money for health care, housing, food, the basic necessities that had always been provided to them by the state under the USSR. Imagine that. Fall of socialism leads to worse conditions for the working class. Yeah, I mean, we've heard it from, from a lot of people who visited that region that the, the days of the Soviet Union were days where they didn't have to worry about basic necessities and people were happy and they had all their needs met. Yeah, such a tragedy. Um, anyway, so in 1990, the United States had made an agreement with Soviet Premier Gorbachev that all of Germany would be reunited and would be a part of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, but that as part of this agreement, NATO would not expand one inch eastward. These were exact words that were said as promised. And written. Yep, made by President George Bush Sr., the older one, that Gorbachev agreed to begin talks, which would lead to the reunification of Germany, but it was only under the understanding that NATO would not move eastward. That's right. And Bush Sr. actually kept these promises. But when Bill Clinton was elected and the Democrats took office in 1992, they soon began pushing for further NATO expansion. It was their belief that the United States was now the sole superpower in the world and that Russia was too weak to oppose any kind of NATO expansion in this sphere of influence. And Russia was not allowed to join NATO, although it wanted to. It wanted to join NATO in the beginning. But with the backing of Bill Clinton, NATO expanded to include Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic in 1999. And then under W, under Bush Jr., it included Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, and North Macedonia in 2003. And then in 2004, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia followed. So an additional 14 states were added to NATO, completely, completely breaking the promise of not one inch eastward. Just an interesting point that it was the Democrats who were the first ones to break this not one inch eastward promise. And today it's the Democrats who are primarily to responsible for launching this war in Ukraine. Yeah. Coincidence. <laughs> or yeah, not. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, so this betrayal, this moving NATO's sphere of influence 600 miles eastward was a betrayal that Russia felt deeply. And, you know, the U.S., they knew this. They understood. You know, politicians and pundits, they believed, you know, this was an act of aggression that was creating a new Cold War. I want to play this little clip here of uh, Joe Biden himself in 1997. He's been in the government for a long time, describing how NATO expansion could impact Russia. Here's Joe Biden in 1997. I think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission, having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in, would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. 
And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. Okay, so in 1997, Joe Biden knew that expanding NATO would end in conflict with Russia. Yeah, he said it would provoke a hostile reaction. He didn't. He said not necessarily military, but um, I don't know what other kind of hostile reaction you could think of. Right. And NATO expansion was a very calculated move by the United States to expand their own imperialist interests at the expense of Russia. And for years, many State Department, many U.S. State Department officials International historians, journalists, and economists across the left-right political spectrum had been warning that this NATO expansion would result in a new Cold War, and perhaps a nuclear war between Russia and the United States. And these voices, they again, they were all across the political spectrum. They included the likes of famous U.S.-Russian diplomat and historian George Kennan, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, former CIA Director Stansfield-Turner, U.S. Ambassador to Moscow, William Burns, Pulitzer Prize-winning economist and journalist Thomas Friedman, Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Princeton and NYU, Stephen Cohen, political scientist John Mersheimer, Andrew Basevich of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, former military official, and a host of international scholars from across the world like Tariq Ali, Vijay Prashad, and even documentary filmmakers like Oliver Stone, who spent years interviewing Putin and understood clearly Russia's security demands surrounding NATO. Famous U.S.-Russia diplomat and historian George Kennan worked for the U.S. State Department helping design Soviet containment policy in the 1940s. And after he left the State Department in 1950, he became a harsh critic of many of those same policies. Later in his life, in 1998, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman asked George Kennan about NATO expansion, and here is what he said, quote, I think it is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely, and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. Of course, there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders, will say that we always told you that is how the Russians are, but this is just wrong, end quote. So that was, again, George Kennan. He was the U.S. diplomat to Russia in the 1940s. And then years later, in 1997, this is after the Soviet Union dissolved, 50 foreign policy experts, including former U.S. senators, retired military officers, diplomats, and academics, former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, former CIA agent Stansfield-Turner, sent an open letter to then-President Bill Clinton calling, quote, the current U.S.-led effort to expand NATO a policy error of historic proportions, end quote. They predicted, in Russia, NATO expansion, which continues to be opposed across the entire political spectrum, will strengthen the non-democratic opposition undercut those who favor reform and cooperation with the West, and bring the Russians to question the entire post-Cold War settlement. Yeah, so here we have all of these experts agreeing that NATO expansion is a terrible idea, including the architect of the Vietnam War, Robert McNamara. <laughs> and a recent FAIR article reports, quote, U.S. planners were again 
were warned again in 2008 by U.S. Ambassador to Moscow William Burns, who is now director of the CIA under Joe Biden. WikiLeaks leaked a cable from Burns titled, Nyet Means Nyet, Russia's NATO Enlargement Red Lines, that included another prophetic warning worth quoting in full. Ukraine and Georgia's NATO aspirations not only touch a raw nerve in Russia, they engender serious concerns about the consequences for stability in the region. Not only does Russia perceive encirclement and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences, which would seriously affect Russian security interests. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership, could lead to a major split involving violence or, at worst, civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. That was in 2008 by William Burns, now the director of the CIA under Joe Biden. That's amazing. Yeah, so the U.S. clearly knew for decades that NATO expansion was a serious security threat to Russia. It had been warned by numerous experts over and over again, but that never stopped NATO from expanding and from tempting fate. So, so much for ending the Cold War. Yeah, clearly the Cold War never ended, and this Ukraine episode is just, you know, a continuation of the Cold War for our generation. Yep, there's always a new generation to reignite the Cold War. But, you know, I think it's important to just say for a second that why do we have a Cold War that keeps resurging every generation there were agreements in place, you know, there were international agreements in place that the not one inch eastward doctrine was written, it was spoken, it was as clear as could be experts unanimously agreed that this is what we need to maintain for stability in the region. But I just feel like this might be a good place to say that the nature of capitalism requires constant conflict. If this were just about the U.S. government resolving the Cold War, you know, it was it was done decades ago. But why is this new Cold War beginning yet again? Because capitalism requires constant instability and volatility because this is how the military industrial complex makes profits. In fact, if you look at the requirements for NATO membership, all NATO states are required to commit 2% of their nation's GDP to the defense industry. So those are guaranteed profits to the military industrial complex just based on NATO membership alone. And we know that the military industrial complex can't make profits without war. So in other words, the expansion of capitalism requires constant war. Yeah, that's really, you know, the nature of our economic system. And, we are a war economy. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, you know, and we've already mentioned the United States sending all these weapons. We haven't even talked about all the weapons that other NATO members are sending to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. and that's further millions and billions of dollars going to the military industrial complex. Now, you know, in the U.S. media, if you even mention NATO expansion, mention any of this history we've just gone over, you know, we'll get attacked as a Putin apologist. They really don't want us to be informed about this history of NATO. Nope. To learn from history. So the media is helping fuel this Cold War. Absolutely. Anyone who seeks to shed light on the broader history of this conflict is being deplatformed, censored, or erased. Yep. And we'll talk more about media censorship a little bit later. 
Okay, so bringing NATO expansion history up to 2021, even with all these clear historical warnings over decades, both Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and the Biden State Department pushed for Ukraine to join NATO in 2021. And in June 2021, mere months after Biden took office, Zelensky was pushing Biden for a NATO action plan. Biden responded in kind and pledged his support for Ukraine's Euro-Atlantic aspirations in September. And in October, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that NATO membership is open to Ukraine and Georgia. Putin responded by declaring once again that NATO membership was a red line on December 2nd, 2021. And, you know, Biden completely ignored this and Zelensky and NATO proceeded on with their plans. In a December 2021 speech to his top military officials, Putin expressed his concerns about missile bases in Ukraine. Quote, over the past few years, military contingents of NATO countries have been almost constantly present on Ukrainian territory under the pretext of exercises. The Ukrainian troop control system has already been integrated into NATO. This means that NATO headquarters can issue direct commands to the Ukrainian armed forces, even to their separate units and squads. He goes on to say, Ukraine joining NATO is a direct threat to Russia's security. Do they really think that we do not see these threats? Or do they think that we will just stand idly watching threats to Russia emerge? This is the problem. We simply have no room to retreat. And then as late as February 19th, 2021, Zelensky was asking NATO for security assurances and sanctions against Russia. So basically, he was asking for NATO membership. This was before Russia had invaded. Yes, this is completely before Russia has invaded. And I think it's just that quote from Putin's really interesting because he's basically saying... I'm backed into a corner. Russia has no room to do anything. We're completely surrounded. Here's, you know, Zelensky about to join NATO. Yeah, I mean, he was very clear saying that NATO was a direct threat to Russia's security. And, you know, talking about the potential of having missile bases in Ukraine, which is probably what would happen if they joined NATO, their reports, quote, Having these missiles so close to Russia, weapons that Russia and China see as part of a plan to give the United States the capacity to launch a nuclear first strike without retaliation, seriously challenges the Cold War deterrent of mutually assured destruction, and more closely resembles a gun pointed at the Russian head for the remainder of the nuclear age. Would this be acceptable to any country? And that's a very good question. Would this be acceptable to the United States? to be surrounded by a military alliance that is primarily backed by Russia, you know, with weapons on borders, on our U.S. borders, on all sides? Of, of course not. I mean, we saw what happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis and how the United States reacted to that and how that almost led to nuclear war. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if Russia was putting missiles in Canada or Mexico, I don't imagine the United States would just roll over and be like, this is a great idea. Yeah. And I, I just think what's so interesting about this is that Putin has been saying the same thing for decades. I mean, he's been remarkably consistent. If you actually go back and look at all of his warnings, he's been asking for the same assurances over and over again regarding NATO expansion. And these assurances have not changed for decades. 
yeah, the United States just continued to ignore these threats. As this threat of war in Ukraine was becoming real, Secretary of State Antony Blinken addresses this issue of NATO expansion as, quote, Kiev's right to choose its own security arrangements and alliances. Um, as Fair reports, as though NATO were a public accommodation open to anyone who wanted to join. Right. Like it's just part of Ukraine's sovereignty to be able to join NATO. That That's just part of any country's right. And this was after U.S. intelligence agencies were pointing out that Russia was amassing troops at the Ukrainian border and planning to attack. Putin was very clear about the path to de-escalation. He called on the West to halt NATO expansion, negotiate Ukrainian neutrality in this East-West rivalry, remove U.S. nuclear weapons from non-proliferating countries, and remove missiles, troops, and bases near Russia. These are the demands that the U.S. would surely have made if it were in Russia's position. These are not unreasonable demands. I don't think anyone wants to have nuclear weapons on their border. Right. And like we just said, you know, these are the same demands Putin's been making for decades. And now these are also the same terms that Putin is reportedly offering in diplomatic talks with Ukraine, even as the military operations continue. So contrary to the corporate media's mantra of unprovoked invasion that they echo over and over and over again, Putin's position has been completely consistent for decades. He's been asking for the same assurances all along, and it's actually the U.S.'s continued escalation of NATO expansionism that has brought us to where we are today. But again, don't take our word for it. This next clip is from former top Pentagon advisor, Colonel Doug McGregor, under the Trump administration, talking to the gray zone. And as far as I can tell, the terms have not changed very much, and they're very straightforward. Number one, Ukraine will be neutral and non-aligned with any bloc. Number two, uh, the Donbass region's de facto independence and, and Russian identity will be acknowledged by uh, Kiev or Kiev. And then finally, uh, the Ukrainians will renounce any claim on uh, Crimea, which, as we all know, this is an ahistorical claim. It's never been Ukrainian. Those have been the, the sort of standard three. Now, there are other things that they want to discuss, no doubt, and they want to be certain that future governments will not be incurably hostile to Moscow and host weapons and systems uh, designed to destroy Russia on their soil. That's clear. But I think uh, they go along with something on the model of the Austrian state treaty. Clearly, uh, Mr. Blinken, uh, Victoria Newland, and their cohorts, and I suspect Mr. Soros has also got his hand in this, are all stonewalling that till the last Ukrainian is dead, I guess. Uh, I hope not, but it certainly looks that way. Yeah, till the last Ukrainian is dead, that sounds like U.S. foreign policy. God, I mean, I think what's just so effing ironic about all of this is, you know, that the corporate media is weaponizing people's sympathy for Ukrainians as a way to escalate this military invasion. That's what they've been doing since day one. And it's just so clear to me after doing all this research that if we really cared about Ukrainian lives, we would be de-escalating this invasion or de-escalating this conflict completely. Yeah, the uh, you know, the U.S. and back in December refused to negotiate on these core concerns, these what I consider to be very reasonable terms that Putin has been offering again and again. 
the U.S. has been ignoring these issues of NATO's military activity in Ukraine, the deployment of um, nuclear weapons in Eastern Europe. Instead of addressing these concerns, the U.S. instead chose to pour hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine, which are exacerbating Putin's security concerns about Ukraine as a proxy state of the United States. At the Munich conference in February, just before the invasion, um, Zelensky didn't help matters by suggesting that Ukraine might begin a nuclear weapons program, which would be a violation of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, where Ukraine agreed to nuclear disarmament. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. This just right before the invasion, here's Zelensky <laughs> wanting to start a nuclear weapons program as he wants to join NATO at the same time. And of course, the U.S. corporate media, this whole buildup around this war, the U.S. corporate media completely refuses to acknowledge any of Russia's security concerns. And NATO's open door policy to Ukraine is just accepted in the media as inevitable in the United States that like Putin just needs to deal with it. You know, like, of course, Ukraine's going to want to be part of NATO, like any nation should have a right to be part of NATO. And this is just something Putin needs to deal with. And this completely arrogant assumption is so key to the Ukraine crisis and has been, you know, so predicted for decades by Cold War experts. And yet it's like we were born yesterday. It just it goes completely unchallenged in the U.S. corporate media. Yeah, they're presenting Putin as being you know, an unhinged madman. Mm-hmm. And they're, he is... they're calling him Hitler-like. Yeah, like that was that was the Hillary Clinton invention, mm-hmm. right? The Hitler thing? Yeah, back in 2014, she brought that up the first time, I think, that Putin has been compared to Hitler. But now you see it all over the place. Mm-hmm. And continually, they call this Russian attack on Ukraine unprovoked. You know, that has to be had like so designed to to say that for every news network to say that word unprovoked over and over and over again. Because they basically are just trying to completely erase history. Yeah, I think this is a State Department talking point. Biden's tweeted it several times, you mm-hmm. know, this unprovoked attack by Putin on Ukraine. Yeah. Um, the U.S. could have avoided this war. You know, they should have taken every opportunity to de-escalate this situation. And as we've shown, they've done the opposite every step of the way. They just continue to escalate, continue to escalate. Until the last Ukrainian is dead, Colonel McGregor says. So, so much for caring about the lives of Ukrainians. Yeah, and you know we're both anti-war activists, and we condemn this military attack on Ukraine by Putin, but we have to understand that this was not an unprovoked attack. This could easily have been seen, and actually the U.S. did, they predicted that the attack was coming. Yeah. And did nothing to try to stop it. Yeah. For, for decades, for decades and decades, you know, open letters to Bill Clinton, military experts, Russian diplomats, university professors, news anchors, leading journalists, everybody knew that this Cold War was, was looming if NATO continued to expand eastward. So the fact that we're standing here today and the media is calling it unprovoked is just a complete joke. Yeah, this is absolutely absurd by the part of the media and Biden and the State Department. And we're going to get into a little bit more of Ukrainian history here. But first, let's take another quick break. All of this history begs the question, 
Why was Ukraine in lockstep with the United States on this war against Russia? Obviously, Russia as a military superpower and a nuclear power is a Goliath of enormous proportions. So why would Ukraine want so much to escalate this war when it could only hurt Ukraine and its citizens? As we're seeing millions of refugees you know, leaving Ukraine and many lives being lost, even with all these weapons that are being shipped into Ukraine from the West, Ukraine still has no advantages in this war. Yeah, they have nothing to gain and essentially everything to lose. And in order to understand why parts of Ukraine have sided with the U.S. in recent decades, I think we have to go back a little bit and see you know, the methods the United States has used to turn Ukraine into a proxy, a Western puppet state, to advance their own, the United States, geopolitical goals. You know, this really goes back to at least 2004. We're going to start there, but there's probably been United States interference as far back as the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. They've been continually involved in this area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 2004, there was this, what they're calling the Orange Revolution of Ukraine. And this was a clear United States creation through U.S. meddling And, you know, it's one of these color revolutions which have occurred throughout Europe and some of the Middle East and Africa and are almost always foreign interventions. Yeah. And for people who haven't heard this term color revolution, what kind of markings does a color revolution have? What does that mean? Does it just mean that there are mass protests and everybody carries some kind of colored flag in the streets? Or like, where does that name come from? Do you know? Yeah, that's that's basically what it is. Um, they base it around a color in Ukraine. This was the color orange, which was the color of the party of Yushchenko. We'll get into that. But essentially, these color protests are a protest that results in a regime change. They follow a similar pattern around the world, usually starting with an electoral victory, which is claimed to be rigged, which then brings the people out. You know, the opposition will say, oh, it was rigged. Then they'll bring out people into the streets with these colors, supporting them, saying, this is a bad election. We're going to call for another election. Most, perhaps all of these color revolutions have been funded or otherwise influenced by the United States or other Western powers to enact regime change. The National Endowment for Democracy has been linked to several of these color revolutions. Hmm. And actually, they recently scrubbed their website of references to their activities in Ukraine. What a great name, the National Endowment for Democracy, (laughs) in quotes. So yeah, speaking about the Orange Revolution in particular, um, here's a little bit of background on it. In 2004, Ukraine became a battlefield for Eastern and Western forces. You know, the Eastern side of Ukraine was more aligned with uh, Russia. The Western side was more aligned with the US and NATO and wanted to be part of the EU. And the pro-Russian candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, had won the presidential election, though the process was tainted by widespread allegations of intimidation and massive vote rigging, which, you know, again, knowing the National Endowment of Democracy's (laughs) link to those protests, we can 
wonder whether the election was actually tainted with widespread irregularities or not. But that was the claim. And so um, this led to wide scale protests with people in the streets demanding a new election. And coincidentally, the result of the new election was that a more Western friendly candidate, Viktor Yushchenko, won over Yanukovych, although there were also reports of discrepancies. And by the way, Yushchenko's wife had been an employee of the U.S. State Department during the Reagan administration. That sounds like a very interesting coincidence. Yeah, so many coincidences here. Really sounds like Yushchenko is already being set up as a U.S. puppet. Mm-hmm. Here's a Guardian article from 2004, so right after this revolution, that says, quote, while the gains of the orange bedecked, quote, chestnut revolution are Ukraine's, the campaign is an American creation, a sophisticated and brilliantly conceived exercise in Western branding and mass marketing that, in four countries in four years, has been used to try to salvage rigged elections and topple unsavory regimes. Funded and organized by the U.S. government, deploying U.S. consultancies, pollsters, diplomats, and two big American parties and U.S. non-governmental organizations, the campaign was first used in Europe in Belgrade in 2000 to beat Slobodan Milosevic at the ballot box. The operation Engineering Democracy Through the Ballot Box and Civil Disobedience is now so slick that the methods have matured into a template for winning other people's elections. End quote. <laughs> Lovely. Oh my gosh. So the obviously the color revolutions had U.S. fingerprints all over it. And then, you know, if there was any doubt that the U.S. was completely involved in meddling with that election and bringing Yushchenko to power, what happened next in Ukraine also reeks of U.S. intervention. Following Yushchenko's election, Ukraine immediately began negotiating with the EU and the IMF seeking loans. The Ukrainian parliament was plagued with infighting, and Yushchenko's administration became internationally recognized as a total failure. Yushchenko was so widely hated, in fact, that he received a mere 5% of the vote in the next election, one of the lowest and most embarrassing defeats of any sitting president in modern times. Wow. Yeah, he was not popular. I mean, he just, his presidency just fell apart. So clearly he did, didn't really have a huge public mandate going into that position. But before he left office in 2010, Yushchenko did something that human rights activists around the world will never forget. He named Stefan Bandera as a national hero. Stefan Bandera was one of Ukraine's most controversial World War II era figures. He was a fascist and an ultra-nationalist military leader who promoted ethnic chauvinism and racial purity during his quest to create an independent Ukrainian state. And this final act in Yushchenko's term sparked angry reactions from Jewish groups in Ukraine, as well as Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And this, again, this was the U.S.-backed candidate. Yeah, and didn't Bandera, you know, he collaborated with Nazis in World War II, right? Yeah, that was what he was kind of famous for in World War II. And, and all of a sudden, Yushchenko... The U.S.-backed president names him a national hero. Yeah, this was just the beginning of long history of the U.S. backing fascist, ultranationalist, neo-Nazi movements in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read a quote here from Stephen Cohen, professor emeritus of Russian studies at Princeton and NYU. 
quote, the significance of neo-Nazism in Ukraine and the at least tacit official U.S. support or tolerance for it should be clearly understood. It did not begin under President Trump, but under President George W. Bush, when then-Ukrainian President Viktor Yushchenko's Orange Revolution began rehabilitating Ukraine's wartime killer of Jews, that's Stepan Bandera, and it grew under President Obama, who along with Vice President Joseph Biden were deeply complicit in the Maidan coup and what followed. End quote. To continue, we see this growing presence of neo-Nazism under Yushchenko, very unpopular president. He is defeated, like we said, with 5% of the vote when Russian allied Viktor Yanukovych ran for president in 2010. This one, I want to make very clear, this election was internationally monitored and verified and recognized by the international community, including the United States State Department. Okay, so Viktor Yanukovych runs again for a second term and he wins and it's internationally recognized. So Yanukovych was was seen and referred to as a pro-Russian candidate that he had allies with with Russia. However, he ran on a platform of Ukrainian neutrality between NATO and Russia. He didn't want to provoke that situation. At the same time, he knew that many Western Ukrainians wanted EU membership, and he was open to that. EU membership required Ukraine to restructure their economy in accordance with certain IMF requirements. Yanukovych took part in these negotiations with the IMF as part of its trade integration with the European Union, and he negotiated a $15.5 billion IMF loan shortly after being elected in 2010. This loan included a 50% increase in natural gas prices for Ukrainian consumers as part of its conditions. So the IMF was very happy with this loan, but the Ukrainian people were not happy with these prices. And seeing how these loan terms were so unpopular, Yanukovych turned to Russia as a way of trying to negotiate a loan with better conditions for the Ukrainian people. And while the details of this presumed loan with Russia aren't public, according to The Guardian, the speculation was that Putin offered Yanukovych a no-interest loan, as well as cheaper oil and gas for the Ukrainian people. I think it's just really important to say here that Yanukovych was so clearly stuck between a rock and a hard place because he had immense pressure from inside Ukraine to join the EU and to accept these IMF loan conditions. But he knew that these IMF loan conditions would wreck the economy and cause soaring prices in gas. So Yanukovych decided to pull out of the IMF negotiations in late 2013 and pull out of the trade deal with the EU that required continued participation with the IMF. And so he started negotiating with Russia for economic support instead. I think that totally makes sense, considering what the IMF does to countries. Yeah. Here's how a recent article by Monthly Review summarizes Yanukovych's predicament in 2013. Quote, the IMF, as is well known, opens up economies around the world for the penetration of metropolitan capital by making them investor-friendly through the adoption of a host of anti-working class and anti-people austerity measures. And such opening up typically involves the taking over of natural resources of the countries and also their land areas by metropolitan capital. The mechanism that the IMF typically uses towards this end is the imposition of conditionalities 
for giving loans to countries that are in need of balance of payments support. This became Yanukovych's unpardonable crime. Breaking off negotiations with the IMF was tantamount to escaping the hegemony, not just of international capital intent on imposing a neoliberal regime, but of the Western imperialist powers, especially the U.S. and hence NATO. In other words, NATO and the IMF were not seen as distinct organizations, each working in its own sphere of operation with its own objective, but organizations with similar and overlapping objectives. The U.S. peeved at Yanukovych's temerity at turning to Russia instead of the IMF, decided to restrict further damage, end quote. So again, this the U.S. was totally not okay with him turning to Russia instead of continuing these IMF-NATO negotiations. And it was an unpardonable crime seen by the West. So as is often the case when there's uh, a country that doesn't develop according to U.S.'s economic and political interests, they step in and make sure that something else happens. Yeah, and this meddling would take a decisive turn in late 2013 and 2014. So this pausing or postponement of the EU deal under Yanukovych was a major focal point for the protests that erupted in the Maidan Square in Kiev. Uh, Most of the people who took part in the protest were simply Ukrainian citizens who were discontented with their economy and their material conditions. And once again, the country was deeply divided between East and West. The more Western-aligned part of Ukraine was very unhappy with the government and believed that you know Yanukovych was personally responsible for not allowing them to be part of the EU. And these people mistakenly believed that a trade agreement with the EU would really improve the economy and their lives, not understanding, of course, all these terms of the IMF loan and what those actually meant for the economy. And hundreds of thousands of people gathered peacefully to express their discontent with Yanukovych with his decision to pull out of negotiations. And these protests lasted for months from November to February, November 2013 to February 2014. Yeah, and I, this has been kind of covered as being a very you know popular protest. But I think it's important to note that in a poll done by the Kiev Post at the time, I think it was done in January 2014, said about 45% of Ukrainians support the demonstrations in favor of Ukraine's closer relations with Europe, known as Euromaidan, while 48% do not support them and 7% are undecided. Yeah, so we can see that the country was pretty evenly divided on the Maidan protests and in this whole decision about whether or not to make an agreement with the EU. The Maidan protest was a very large protest, but again, it was in no way supported by a majority of the country, contrary to what the U.S. media and the West would have you believe. And if anything, there was a slim majority against joining the EU and in favor of the actions of Yanukovych. 
And I thought it was important just to bring this up about the revisionist history that's been going on around 2014, because it's just being echoed in propaganda documentaries like Winter on Fire that's on Netflix right now. This idea that like everybody was out in the streets and they were uniformly against the Yanukovych government, when in fact, more than half the people were not. It's clear it was a very big protest movement. But it's also from this poll shows that more people did not support this trade relations with Europe than actually did support it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't know if the U.S. was directly involved with the first protests. They may have actually just started organically. But whether or not the U.S. actually planted these seeds, they took advantage of the general discontent to carry out a regime change operation. Essentially, another kind of color revolution is what we're seeing here in Maidan in 2014. Mm -hmm. But it went much further this time. Yeah, the other one, they just called for a new election. And as we'll see, this turned into a lot more than just that. You know, some call it a U.S.-backed coup, and others call it the Maidan revolution. (laughs) Um, I think we agree that it was a U.S.-backed coup. Mm Mm-hmm. What resulted after 90 days of street protests in Kiev, which started out as peaceful protests and turned into a bloodbath after neo-Nazi provocateurs started to engage in street fighting with the police, was that the U.S. backed the installation of a right-wing administration with Yatsen Yuk as prime minister and Poroshenko as president. And there were many neo-Nazis ended up in the cabinet. So we're going to talk about a little bit more here later. And Yanukovych, who had been democratically elected, was forced to flee the country. Yeah. Um, That sounds like a coup to me. Yeah. I mean, it was the unconstitutional removal of a democratically elected president. So whether or not there were spontaneous protests that arose from people's discontent in the country, which very well might be the case. What ended up happening legally was the removal of a democratically elected president after U.S.-backed right-wing neo-Nazi forces took over the protest. And how do we know that the United States was involved? Well, these weren't exactly clandestine operations. In December of 2013, Senators John McCain and Chris Murphy traveled to Ukraine and met with leaders from a Yanukovych opposition party, the neo-Nazi Svoboda Party, and its founders, Ole Tanibak. Is that how you say it? Tanibak. Tanibak, I think. Mm-hmm. And Andri Parubi. So anyway, they were the neo-Nazi leaders from the neo-Nazi Savoboda party. And John McCain and Chris Murphy traveled to Ukraine to meet with them. And they went to a protest. They went to one of the large protests in the square and spoke to the protesters at large from a stage. And also there was Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland in 2013, handing out sandwiches and giving the audience a very pro-European message, saying that if the Ukrainian government used force on the protesters, that the U.S. would have to react. And here is Senator John McCain speaking to the Ukrainian protesters at the Maidan. People of Ukraine, this is your moment this is about you, no one else. This is about the future you want for your country. This is about the future you deserve. 
Це про ваше майбутнє, про майбутнє вашої країни. Це про майбутнє, на яке ви заслуговуєте. Майбутнє Європи. Майбутнє миру. Майбутнє всіх ваших сусідів. І ваша доля, як ми вважаємо, знаходиться в об'єднаній Європі. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he's like, your fate is with Europe. Like, you will join Europe. Ukraine will make Europe better, and Europe will make Ukraine better, by which he means the IMF will destroy your country through austerity measures. <laughs> Come, join NATO and the IMF and be impoverished for generations. Yeah, and I don't know if you noticed, but the translator was actually leading the chant of thank you at the end to get the protesters shouting thank you at McCain. I thought that was very uh, interesting. How patronizing. So like the whole audience is shouting thank you to McCain, like as if he's their savior for yeah. coming to rescue them from the evil Yanukovych. Yeah, it's pretty absurd and it seems like a very staged speech saying you know, america is with you we back you join europe now everybody yell thank you to the white savior who's standing on the stage nice here's another clip with victoria newland who was speaking at the u.s ukraine foundation conference which just happened to be sponsored by Chevron. I'm sure there's no connection to Ukrainian oil interests there. No, why would there be? <laughs> sponsored by Chevron, the U.S.-Ukraine conference. How about that? And this was in 2013 during the Maidan protests, which he gave this speech. Later that same day, I spent more than two hours with President Yanukovych. It was a tough conversation, but also a realistic one. I made absolutely clear to him on behalf of the United States that what happened December 10th and more general, generally what has been happening in security terms is absolutely impermissible in a European state, in a democratic state. But I also made clear that the United States believes there is a way out for Ukraine, that it is still possible to save Ukraine's European future, and that that is where we wanted to see the president lead his country. And that was going to require immediate steps to de-escalate the security situation and immediate political steps to end the crisis and get Ukraine back into a conversation with Europe and with the International Monetary Fund. As you all know, and as I'm sure you just heard from Anders and other colleagues, Ukraine's economy is in a dire state, having been in recession for more than a year and with less than three months' worth of foreign currency reserves in place. The reforms that the IMF insists on are necessary for the long-term economic health of the country. A new deal with the IMF would also send a positive signal to private markets and would increase foreign direct investment that is so urgently needed in Ukraine. Signing the association agreement with the EU would also put Ukraine on a path to strengthening the sort of stable and predictable business environment that investors require. There is no other path that would bring Ukraine back to long-term political stability and economic growth. 
Wow. Yeah. So I'm speechless. <laughs> Hold on. I just got to take that in for a second. Basically, it's like she's saying, you have no choice. This is your fate. This is your destiny. You will be joining the IMF. You will be joining the EU. This is the plan. Get on board. Yeah, she told President Yanukovych that if this didn't happen, he was gone, essentially. That's the impression I get from this. Yeah. The path out for him was agree to everything the EU and the IMF are requiring. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm stunned at the transparency of the um, the rhetoric around regime change. I mean, it's it's almost, it's like it's just right there. <sighs> and it's as if that wasn't bad enough. Again, that was the that was the U.S. Ukraine Foundation conference sponsored by Chevron in January 2014, which was still while the protests were going on. There was a phone call between Victoria Newland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine at the time, Jeffrey Pyatt, and that phone call was leaked. And this is a phone call that has since become famous, where they discuss the future role of various Ukrainian politicians in the new regime including selecting Arseniy Yatsenyuk for prime minister. And here is a clip from that phone call. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleet should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you think what in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I, kinda... I, 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 just, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, it, I think that's you know? I think that's right. Okay, good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him? Is the next step? My understanding from that call, but you tell me, was that the big three were going into their own meeting, and that Yats was going to offer in that context a, a three-way, you know, the three plus one conversation or three plus two with you. Is that not mm -hmm. how you understood it? No, I think, I mean, that's what he proposed, but I think just knowing the dynamic that's been with them where um, Klitschko has been the top dog, he's going to take a while to show up for whatever meeting they've got, and he's probably talking to his guys at this point. So I think you reaching out directly to him helps with the personality management among the three, and it, and it gives you also a chance to move fast on all this stuff and put us behind it, behind it before they all sit down and he, um, he explains why he doesn't like it. Okay, good. I'm happy. Why don't you reach out to him and see if he wants to talk before or after? Okay, will do. Thanks. Okay, I've now written, oh, one more wrinkle for you, Jeff. Yeah. I uh, can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the UN guy, Robert Seri. Did I write yeah. you that this morning? Yeah, okay. I saw that. He's now gotten both Sari and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Sari could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, fuck the EU. 
No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych that. But in the meantime, there's a party of regions faction meeting going on right now. And I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could uh, we could land jelly side up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on let me work on Klitschko. And if you can just keep, I, I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych. But we can probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place. So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden, and I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. Okay. Oh, my God. I can't get my jaw off the floor. Holy shit. There's so much in that phone call. Yeah. I mean, where do you start? They're They're basically negotiating the terms for the new government. And figuring out how they're going to use the far-right neo-Nazi Savoboda party to back up their pick for their government. And it directly implicates uh, Jake Sullivan and Joe Biden. And obviously Victoria Nuland, who is, by the way, the current Undersecretary of Defense in the Biden administration. But I'm sure that's just another coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, so according to Code Pink's Medea Benjamin, a longtime foreign policy analysis and uh, anti-war activist, quote, Ukraine's neo-Nazi Svoboda Party and its founders Oli Tanibuk and Andriy Parubli played leading roles in the U.S.-backed coup in February 2014. Assistant Secretary Newland and Ambassador Pyatt mentioned Tony Bach as one of the leaders they were working with on their inf infamous leaked phone call before the coup, even as they tried to exclude him from an official position in the post-coup government. Yeah, and we heard that. They were saying, like, we need him pushing from the outside, basically. So that's very damning. Obviously, they directly mentioned working with Tony Bach, which is one of the main founders of the neo-Nazi Savoboda party, who, by the way, was pictured standing on the stage with John McCain and um, Chris Murphy during the Maidan protest. You can see video of them standing arm in arm next or shoulder to shoulder in Oliver Stone's documentary, Ukraine on Fire. And as well, you can just Google it and 2014 Maidan protest and see photos of McCain and Chris Murphy and Tani Brooks standing next to each other, the neo-Nazi Savoboda party leader on the stage at the protests. And this um, entire coup and that leaked phone call obviously directly implicate Joe Biden. So um, is it a coincidence that this latest Ukraine war is starting under a Joe Biden presidency? No, I, there's no way. Yeah. And the fact that Victoria Nuland still has a place in Biden's cabinet under Secretary of Defense? After that fuck the EU call, you'd think they'd remove her from the government? Yeah, you'd think that just might be like bad optics at this point. But apparently the United States doesn't even care about their relationship with the EU. <laughs> or they just think people aren't looking like they're, they're not going to look back. They're not going to go digging. They're not going to find these yeah. phone calls. <sighs> and again, Jake Sullivan is the current national security advisor. Yeah, and we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Um, I want to go back to kind of what was happening 
during the Maidan protests, and once again, I'm going to quote from Medea Benjamin, as formerly peaceful protests in Kiev gave way to pitched battles with police and violent armed marches to try to break through police barricades and reach the parliament building, Svodoba members and newly formed right sector militia, led by Dmitro Yarosh, attacked police, spearheaded marches, and raided a police armory for weapons. By mid-February 2014, these men with guns were the de facto leaders of the Maidan movement. Yeah, so this was that point in the protest where all hell broke loose. And I remember from Oliver Stone's documentary, Revealing Ukraine, this was the section when so many protesters started getting shot by snipers from windows in buildings surrounding the square. And I mean, it was complete chaos and violence, like Ukrainian police officers were being set on fire. It, it was just a complete bloodbath at this point. Yeah. And so what had started as a peaceful protest had been entirely co-opted by these neo-Nazi far-right hate groups who were provoking the police with violent attacks. The situation really came to a head, as you were saying, when around 100 protesters were killed by snipers on February 20th, 2014. These deaths were blamed on Yanukovych's police, but later forensic evidence has shown that both police and protesters were targeted by the snipers. Yeah, uh, none of the, quote, explainer pieces on Ukraine in the corporate media will talk about Nazis. That's just completely omitted. Um, you know, there's the Netflix, quote unquote, documentary Winter on Fire, which uh, was made in 2015, but Netflix is newly featuring it on its website, as well as YouTube. They released it for free on YouTube, which is something Netflix never does with their original content. Wow. So all of a sudden, free propaganda from Netflix, presenting the Maidan protests as if it is 100% a people's revolution. This documentary completely demonizes the Ukrainian pro-Russian police as if they are the only perpetrators of violence at the protest. It doesn't have any commentary around the neo-Nazi presence or the right-wing presence there, even though they were even in the footage of that documentary, marching in the streets by the hundreds, carrying torches. And, um, you know, in other documentaries, like in Ukraine on Fire or in Revealing Ukraine and Oliver Stone's documentaries, we see police officers themselves being set on fire. But in this propaganda piece on Netflix, you don't see any of that. You just hear that these are, you know, Yanukovych's police forces committing all of the violence and implying that also the, those police forces were the ones shooting the protesters from the windows of buildings. Everything was blamed on Yanukovych. Yeah, and we can see from other documentaries and even the same footage in Winter on Fire from independent foreign journalists, like in Masks of the Revolution, which was a French piece that was released, I think, in 2016. You can see these neo-Nazi groups everywhere with their black and red flags of the right sector, their um, Wolf's Angel insignias of the, uh, the Azov Battalion, uh, marching through the streets at Maidan attacking police officers, but the Oliver Stone documentary, um, Ukraine on Fire and Revealing Ukraine, have both been heavily censored. It was taken off YouTube for a while. Now, in order to see it on YouTube, you have to click a little, like, this is a violent thing. Are you sure you want to watch it to get through to it? Right. Several, 
firewalls. If you search for it, um, Winter on Fire shows up before Ukraine on Fire in the search. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think one of the one of the most interesting things about revealing Ukraine is right at the beginning in the Oliver Stone documentary, it comes out and looks at the deaths and the, the sniper shootings of those 100 protesters in the Maidan protests and talks about the forensic evidence that has since been released that links them directly to to the fascist right wing forces that we know were in those buildings. So I, that's just a little interesting tidbit. That came out later, but of course, the U.S. media doesn't want you to know that. Yeah, I just want to briefly talk about the Azov Battalion here, um, which came out of these like Patriot of Ukraine street fighters who were easily distinguished by their yellow armbands with a stylized Stolaska-esque logo. This Patriot of Ukraine group disbanded in 2014 and joined the Azov Battalion. And um, But the Azov Battalion was... Founded by Andrei Boletsky, an avowed white supremacist who claimed that Ukraine's national purpose was to rid the country of Jews and other inferior races. Clearly neo-Nazi. It was the Azov Battalion that would lead the post-coup government's assault on the self-declared republics Donetsk and Luhansk and retook the city of Mariupol from separatist forces. The U.S. has supplied arms and military training to the Azov Battalion since then, despite occasional protests in Congress. Yeah. So since 2014, the U.S. has been arming the Azov Battalion, this neo-Nazi militarized group. And uh, like you said, there have been occasional protests in Congress. In fact, California Congressman Rokana used to tweet about this extensively, and he even pushed an amendment in 2018 that was later repealed to for the U.S. to stop funding the Azov Battalion due to its Nazi connections. But ironically, today, Rokana is making no mention of who the United States is funding to fight in this war in Ukraine right now. And he's no longer protesting the Azov Battalion or the funding of the Azov Battalion. Here's a recent interview clip with Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone describing an interview that he spontaneously did with Rokana. The America First coalition or, or contingent in Congress has been more outspoken about the U.S. escalating in Congress than people like Ro Khanna, which sure. is why when I saw Ro Khanna, I just happened to be on Capitol Hill and I'm always prepared at times like this to do interviews. I, 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 I saw him go into a cafe and I said, you know, he needs to, to, to speak out against the U.S. escalating because he ran on that kind of platform. So I waited for him. He came out and I politely asked him some questions to that effect. He said to me something that I thought only right wingers during the first Bush term would say, freedom isn't free. This is about freedom and America's the best country in the world and we got to send in the Stinger missiles. This was the guy who was in 2018 pushing the ban on weapons to Azov, to the That's Azov right. battalion, doing so openly. Uh, tweeting about how Azov was a neo-Nazi battalion incorporated into Ukrainian military. He put the orange revolution, the color revolution in quotes, like in scare quotes, like he was, he was mocking the whole thing. And now he's joined the war party as have so many of the other progressives, AOC wearing her, you know, Ukraine uh, badge. Yeah. Essentially the U S has been backing neo-Nazis and far right operatives in Ukraine since at least 2004 during the color revolutions and extensively in 2014 in the Maidan revolution. 
And this support has not ended and it's continuing today with the Ukrainian war. Right. So um, perhaps many of you know who Scott Ritter is. For those of us who survived the multiple invasions of Iraq, I remember him very well. He was on the news a lot because he was the Marine Corps intelligence officer and the UN weapons inspector for Iraq. He had served in the Persian Gulf also during, well, in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq when he was charged with overseeing the disarmament of weapons of mass destruction. But in that, it was in that position where he uh, broke rank with the, the State Department and the, the U.S. military apparatus because he ended up blowing the whistle on weapons of mass destruction as a lie and as a false flag during the lead up to the Iraq invasion. And he has since become a major critic of U.S. foreign policy. So here's Scott Ritter today speaking about the U.S. role in 2014. What happened is the United States and European Union mobilized this virulent nationalist group out of Lvov in western Ukraine, among whom were these neo-Nazis who worshipped Stepan Bandera and the, Band, uh, the Banderista movement, uh, which was a pro Nazi Ukrainian national movement carried out a resistance in that area for decades. Um, these guys came in and took over Maidan, violently overthrew the, the, the legitimate president of Ukraine, and then imposed themselves through force of violence into the Ukrainian body politic. To give you an example of how powerful they are, when Poroshenko, who was the president before Zelensky, uh, negotiated the Minsk Accords in 2015, 2014, 2015, you know, he agreed that all they had to do is give a special autonomous situation to their status to the Donetsk and Lugansk, and they would stay part of Ukraine. He agreed with Germany and France. Then he came back and the neo-Nazis said, you try and implement that, we'll kill you. Americans get upset with a bunch of rioters taking the capital and then leaving the same day. I get upset about it. I'm not happy about it. But the, it ain't an insurrection. An insurrection is what happened in Ukraine. It's happening every day. Zelensky was told. He was elected to be the president who brought peace. If you remember, Zelensky toured the front line because they were supposed to disarm. And he went up to the Azov battalion and he said, disarm. And they laughed at him, kicked him out. He said, I'm the president of Ukraine. They said, shut up. We'll slap you. He had to leave. And he was told, if you sign Minsk, we will hang you by the neck until dead. That's the control these people have. And they've done it in the military. They, you know, these people should have been disbanded, arrested, shot. Instead, the military absorbed them and then promoted their officers throughout the ranks so that there's neo-Nazis everywhere. And the biggest embarrassment of all is when British, American, and Canadian troops go to Ukraine to train that military and NATO tactics, NATO equipment. The photographs show that they're training the Azov Battalion because those were the first units Ukrainian military brought forward for training. We trained Nazis. Well, there you have it. You can't say it much more clearly than that. Yeah, I mean, we can see that Nazis are a big part of the Ukrainian regime during the Maidan coup in which Yanukovych was overthrown. The Svoboda party played a leading role, as we saw with Tony Bach being one of the leaders that Newland and Payette were uh, working with. And after the coup, three of these leading neo-Nazis were rewarded with a disproportionate role in the new regime. 
um, U.S.-backed Yatsenyuk was appointed as prime minister, and he gave these cabinet positions to Alexander Sitch, Svoboda's Andriy Parby. Many U.S.-backed Ukrainian leaders like to argue that these Nazi forces disappeared after the Maidan, but the truth is that they actually received key positions in the government, and this is how they were pacified. Yeah, quote, pacified. Yeah, we hear that all the time, that the neo-Nazi forces that were present in Maidan were absorbed into the government. So we don't have to worry about them anymore is the implication there. But actually, they were absorbed because they were given leading cabinet positions. Savoboda was given leading cabinet positions in the government, in the post-coup government. Yeah, just the same way that the Azov Battalion was absorbed into their military and became an official part of their National Guard. That's right. So there's one last piece we want to address before closing out this episode on the history of Ukraine and U.S. foreign policy, and that's just to take a quick look at who's in the Biden cabinet today and who is leading this new Cold War. It's important to note that these are a lot of the very same people who have been meddling in Ukraine since the color revolutions of 2004. This is independent journalist Aaron Maté with The Gray Zone. And now Joe, it's like Joe Biden and Jake Sullivan are now back to essentially pick up where they left off, which is using Ukraine as cannon fodder against Russia, dangling the prospect of NATO membership. And these are the people, Biden and Jake Sullivan, who are now running policy, the people who essentially helped start this crisis, who have as much responsibility as anyone, along with Victoria Nuland, who was uh, the person on the ground carrying out this coup policy for them. And now they're the ones in charge. Yeah, and that's something we want to get into in our next episode on the war in Ukraine, where we want to talk more about Biden's oligarchs. And spoiler alert, they're a lot more numerous and richer than Russia's oligarchs. And we'll talk a little bit about who is in the Biden administration today, their deep ties to the military industrial complex, weapon manufacturers, the IMF, and, you know, how Biden was very closely involved in the post-coup government in Ukraine that included these neo-Nazis that we brought up earlier. Right. Our point in bringing you all of this history about Ukraine is twofold. We need to understand that this new Cold War is being launched by neoliberals and neocons in their effort to maintain a unipolar U.S. dominance over the world. These U.S. oligarchs, Democrats and Republicans, are united in their effort to use the U.S. Treasury to launch this war of historic proportions, a renewed Cold War that could escalate into World War III, into nuclear war. And it's always, you know, as all wars, it's a war against the working classes and the poor of the world, a war that will increase violence, starvation, hunger and poverty for millions. You know, as Hillary Clinton described it, that this could be the next Afghanistan. Here again is top Pentagon advisor Colonel Doug McGregor. And I think it's a mistake to talk exclusively about the administration. I think we need to understand that this really is the uniparty. Uh, Democrat versus Republican labels are irrelevant. They're all responding to the same collection of donors. The donors want conflict. The donors enjoy conflict, enrich themselves as a result of conflict, and the donors grossly underestimate the dangers because the donors have no real experience on the ground in the military. They don't know what they're dealing with. I read a number of reports that were given by former soldiers in the United States Army, Special Operations Forces, and Marines who have since been to Ukraine and come back. 
And if you want to hear more of that interview, that's such a great interview. Um, you can find that interview on the gray zone in full. It's a very lengthy interview with Max Blumenthal and Aaron Mate. But I mean, yes, this is the uniparty there. Everybody responds to the same donors. It doesn't matter what party you are. We've listened to enough historical Cold War experts from the right and the left, from peace activists to Defense Department strategists and CIA officials. Colonel Doug McGregor, he's a conservative Pentagon advisor who worked under Trump. You know, right. If you listen to this interview, he's talking about like global Marxism and stuff. Like he's not on the left. Not at all. <laughs> but on this Ukraine issue... He seems to have a very clear understanding of what's going on. Recommend you guys listen to the whole interview. But it's not about Dems versus Republicans. Um, this is about capitalism, the donors, and the war machine that just has to keep churning out global instability and crisis to keep bringing in those profits for the military industrial complex. Right. And again, this is just the beginning of a new Cold War that could last decades, honestly. Now the United States is beginning to sanction China which has so far in this Ukraine crisis been very neutral, offering to be mediators and arbiters between the Ukraine and Russia, insisting that they will stay out of it militarily while offering to, to sit down in talks with Russia and Ukraine. But now, without China doing anything, the United States is already threatening China in case they might get involved in, in some larger way. Yeah, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has been spouting all this anti-China, anti-Russia Cold War rhetoric since the day he took office. Even though China is the United States' biggest trading partner and has refused to get militarily involved in Ukraine, it stayed neutral. The U.S. is trying to bully China into not aiding Russia at all. Right. And here at Crawdads and Taters, we're leftists, we're anti-capitalists. And we actually care about the lives of the poor and the working class of every country. So we have to understand that this Ukraine war, just like every other U.S. war, is a class war led by oligarchs of all stripes on behalf of the rich and against the working class and the poor of many countries. And not just the U.S., the Ukraine and Russia, but the working class and poor of many nations around the world whose basic necessities are dependent on these two superpowers. We have to speak out against this war because the U.S. role in it is ongoing. And if we care more about human life and human rights than the profits of the military industrial complex, we're obliged to speak out against this war and all imperial U.S. wars around the world, including wars in Syria, Yemen, Palestine, Iran, Libya, Iraq, and many other countries where the U.S. using NATO as its imperial arm has participated in genocide indiscriminate killing, creating mass suffering and starvation, oftentimes much, much worse than what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. And all of these other wars, many of them are happening right now as we speak. Yeah, just because the mainstream media isn't showing them doesn't mean they're not happening. Yemen, there's bombs falling in Yemen every day. The death and suffering we're seeing 24-7 on Ukraine is terrible, but it's small in proportion to many of these other wars there's a war going on in Ethiopia with the Tigray people. It's all just awful wars, but the media has focused solely on Ukraine and demonizing Putin and Russia and China as these aggressive nations. Right. So again, you know, the U.S. media is weaponizing U.S. sympathy and public opinion for Ukrainians in order to justify 
all of this increased military spending, all of this enrichment of the military industrial complex. And all of this is part of a much bigger U.S. media Cold War strategy that we will continue to explore here on Crawdads and Taters. During this war, very reliable sources of information, a lot of them have been banned or deplatformed because, you know, that's what happens. That's what they say, you know, in in times of war, the, the first casualty is the truth. So we encourage you to do your own research. We encourage you to read banned books. We encourage you to check out the work of banned journalists and reporters. And um, just to give you a sense of some of our sources, we'll just mention a few here. There's um, Oliver Stone's Ukraine on Fire, which we talked about, which is a great launching off point for just getting a general overview of the history of Ukraine. Again, it's been deplatformed from Google and YouTube. It's been labeled by the mainstream media as Kremlin propaganda, but we encourage you to go find it on Rumble. What else? So we've quoted several times from FAIR Online, which stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. They've been around, by the way, since 1986, and they're a media watchdog group that has done excellent work on monitoring corporate journalism since the 80s. We also quoted from Medea Benjamin with Code Pink. Code Pink has been always on the right side of war uh, and U.S.-backed wars and coups and U.S. interventionism. They're always out protesting U.S. interventionism and, you know, taking a stance against war. And then also the Gray Zone. We mentioned that interview with uh, Colonel McGregor. They've done plenty of other interviews and articles. They've done really good articles on like Zelensky's connection with these neo-Nazi groups. Definitely recommend The Gray Zone with Aaron Maté and Max Blumenthal. Jacobin Magazine online has been doing great reporting on this crisis since it began, going into the history, doing really solid analysis on the history of U.S. interventionism, neo-Nazis, etc., we also recommend Abby Martin and the Empire Files. Uh, much of her work has been removed with the shuttering of RT America. Right. So you have to find her on SoundCloud, the Empire Files on SoundCloud. And of course, Chris Hedges, you know, the longtime critic of U.S. foreign policy, former New York Times writer who was fired or resigned, I guess, depending on who you talk to after his coverage on the multiple Iraq invasions. He had been with the with the Times for decades following many um, wars around the world and finally left in disgust. And he has been largely scrubbed from the internet as well. He used to be on RT regularly. Now many of his articles are on Sheer Post, but you can just just look for him, just Google him and read him wherever you can find him. And lastly, I mean, there's a lot of others as well. I just want to mention Lee Camp, whose uh, show Redacted Tonight has also been pretty much completely removed and it's been removed from Spotify, removed from YouTube. All 600 episodes yeah. were taken down from YouTube. Yep. And he's he's done great work. You can find him on this. There's a great interview with him on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. And finally, we encourage you to continue listening to and supporting Crawdads and Taters so that we can continue to bring you updates on this particular war. We have spent, again, hours and days and weeks um, digging deeply into Ukraine so that we can do this in our free time on our weekends and evenings and bring you some truth in the midst of this media cold war. And a special shout out to Liz Font for her continued support. We really appreciate that and our other patrons as well. Yes, other patron subscribers. Thank you so much.
What you gonna do when the leg goes dry, honey? Lord, Lord, what you gonna do when the leg goes dry, baby? Lord, Lord, what you gonna do when the leg goes dry? Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Three for down, three for down. 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 Three for down.